dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the man, the myth, the legend, the very extensive bio, the two-time best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Dr. Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Hey, I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. We are blessed to have uh, this topic and this guest today. So I'm thrilled. That's how I'm doing. Let's get Listen, let's get right into it. We don't want to waste any time. We have one of the worst. I could read his bio, but you truly, <laughs> it, 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 it would it would first of all it would take about fifteen minutes for us to yep. get through it. But beyond that, he is simply put one of this generation's foremost spiritual leaders. He is the pastor, senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, and the author of many books. But the book we're talking about today is Dancing in the Darkness. The Reverend Doctor Otis Moss the Third. How you doing, sir? Hey, I'm doing wonderful, Tyler. Doing wonderful, Dr. Tisby. It's it's wonderful to be on passing the mic. I've been waiting to pass this mic for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to start here because I think it's so interesting. Um, this feels full circle because years ago I was watching your lectures at the Lyman Beecher Lectures, your uh, talks of the Lyman Beecher Lectures at Yale. And if you understand preaching and the craft of preaching, you know that this is like one of the foremost spaces to talk about preaching and talk about um, communication, spiritual rhetoric. And you ended one of your lectures by telling the dancing in the darkness story. And I remember saying out loud, this was years ago. I remember saying out loud, now that sounds like a book. So was this always (laughs) going to be a book where you just, did you know in that moment, this is going to be a sermon series, a book, something of that nature? You know, I, I didn't. It was it was as a part of, uh, you know, as you said, the lectures, it was a story that I that I had shared numerous times as we were going through the challenges at, uh, at Trinity United Church of Christ. I I had hoped to be able to share that story as kind of a, a part of the tapestry of 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 African-American communication in terms of, you know, how we look at our children and how our children teach us and how God uses our children to be our teachers and theologians and spiritual leaders. So, so no, I did not know. I did not know. But man, I appreciate that very much. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's so interesting. People need to understand that maybe the, the, the body of Christ, the kingdom is so broad. People need to understand that Dr. Moss is one of the greatest living preachers. And that's the floor of the statement. Uh, the ceiling of the statement is one of the greatest oh, preachers um, of this century, one of the greatest preachers um, in recent memory. And the the subtitle of the book is, is pushing us towards spiritual lessons or reflections while we're living in turbulent times. Mm-hmm. And so the implication is times are turbulent. What you even reference in the book is everyone would agree that times are turbulent, but different people would attribute different causes for the turbulence. So from your perspective as a pastor, spiritual leader, a guide, uh, now becoming a sage, what is causing the turbulence or what are some things that are causing turbulence in these times? Mm. Oh, wow, Tyler, that's a, that's a tremendous question. I, I think central to 
American turbulence would would have to be the embracing and being inebriated by the the poison of the mythology of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I say that the inebriation is that when you become drunk, your your sense and your balance is completely off, and you end up creating other forms of destruction uh, when when you're inebriated. And in the American context, uh, that inebriation of white supremacy leads to other spiritual, sociological, economic complications in the collective uh, body of the American democratic project. And until we address that particular spiritual sin uh, and the original sin uh, in, in, in America, and it's really the only way that you can address certain physical complications is you have to admit that you have them. Mm. So if there is no admission, then there is no uh, restoration. And so we want to move to restoration without admission. It would be similar to, you know, an athlete saying, I'm not hurt, but you're playing on uh, essentially a fractured ankle. That fractured ankle, it gets worse. Then eventually the fractured angle becomes torn tendons. And then eventually you have to go into surgery or you can't walk. And they say, no, I'm still not hurt. And America likes to act as if it has no issues and wants to be so aspirational and exceptional without recognizing the frailty of its unfinished project. My, my, my. You just uh, articulated in a beautiful way my passion for history. And the reason why I think we need to oftentimes start with history, because that's the that's the admission. That's the admitting yes. that we have a problem. Um, I was struck by by so many of your thoughts in this book. But but one of the, I think, uh, foundational thoughts that you give in the introduction, you talk about your church and I think uh, more broadly your approach to the back, black spiritual tradition. And you say, we proudly proclaim that we are unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. Now, I think that is profound. A little of our story on this podcast, at least my story, is coming out of white evangelical church spaces, um, white Christian nonprofit spaces. And so when you say these things uh, around being black and Christian, it's profound for me. So I wonder if you would just unpack that statement a little bit. And I'm not a member of your congregation, but you could pastor me a little bit around this topic of black spiritual tradition, black and Christian. Sure. Well, well, let me let me begin just kind of share my story. Not only, you know, at our church, Trinity Natural Christ, we we say that we're understandably black and apologetically Christian, but I developed in 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 the black spiritual tradition and black spiritual free space. 
Uh, Some of my friends and colleagues, they say, oh, you're the Ethiopian of the bunch. And the reason they say that is because you you never had these other challenges of growing up in primarily white spaces and trying to negotiate and figure out how does your blackness and your uh, black spirituality fit in that. So let me give you just a little bit of background in in reference to myself. Uh, I grew up at the Olivet Institutional Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio. My father was the pastor. My mother and father met in in the freedom movement. Um, my father was an organizer for SCLC and was one of the organizers for the Atlanta sit-in movement. My mother was an office manager for SCLC, and and they and that's when they met. And um, Dr. King performed the nuptials and, and all of that. But they're they're people from from mm-hmm. the movement, and I was raised in a space where I thought that the primary role of the church was transformation, especially within the community. And all of these people of different uh, denominations and whatnot would, would come to the, to the church and these, these individuals, whether you're talking Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Andrew Young, White uh, T. Walker, James Earl, Orange, uh, Marion Wright Edelman, these were just consistent names and people who showed up in and around our, our household uh, all, all the time. And so it was not until I got to college that I realized that there were different groups and framings because I thought there was a black church and then there was, you know, the white church. I thought black folk were about, hey, we're going to transform stuff. And, you know, white folks just did stuff on Sundays. Um, <laughs> I go to college and I fair, like that's fair <laughs> nominations, you know, and, and there, there's some people over here saying we're in the world, not of the world. Some of them, we're holiness and we're sanctified. I was like, what y'all doing? Are y'all going to do anything in the community? You know, Jesus, we're called for embodiment. You know, we have to embody uh, Jesus. So I give that background. Because I learned uh, early on, because it was passed on to me from from the tradition that I'm come from, that the black church is not the white church in blackface. That we have a Mm. tradition that does not begin in 1619, that our black spirituality, our theology, our framing, our connection uh, and understanding of God is radically different from uh, the evangelical or Protestant tradition. We believe that uh, there is no sacred or secular separation, that God functions everywhere. And here's here's the story. It's one of my favorite stories to share when I realized this. So when I was, let me see here, I think it was about 13, uh, went to a concert. And it was really with, with Jack and Jill, the Jack and Jill, you know, the bougie program, Jack and Jill. Um, and so Jack and Jill went to see uh, Luther Vandross and DeBarge. I didn't want to go. The only reason I went is because there was a girl I thought was cute. And that's the only reason I went. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's the only reason to go because I wasn't interested in DeBarge. You know, I didn't, you know, I like it. No, I don't. And, 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 and Luther, you know, I'm like, that's you know, my sister and my parents. They, they listen to Luther. I don't listen to Luther. And so we're at this place called the Front Row Theater. It's a theater in the round. And it, it turns, you know, so no matter where you're sitting, you get a chance to see the band and the singer from all directions. And so, you know, DeBarge came out and did their thing like, yeah, whatever. Where's Bunny DeBarge? That's the one who's cute. Um, and then uh, Luther comes on and I'm like, all right, I'm going to sleep. I'm, you know, trying to talk to the you know young girl I want to talk to. And Luther begins to sing a house 
is not home. <laughs> Lord have mercy. And as he's singing, my eyes like, man, this man is amazing. But here is the thing that blew me away. A woman in the third row started shouting. I mean, shouting like she Pentecostal straight up shouting. Oh, look closer. And I said, he goes to my church. <laughs> and then it, 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 I realized the spirit is not bound mm. by the geography or a building within the black tradition. The spirit can show up anywhere. So it can be Jay Dilla and the spirit shows up yeah. or it can be as someone is listening to Kirk Franklin and the spirit shows up. That, that's one thing. The, the, the other thing is that that we believe that that in the, we are Christ centric within the black spiritual tradition because we believe in the embodiment of Jesus. When 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 we go see the Passion, and it was fascinating. People saw the movie The Passion, and you know people were crying behind me. This is so terrible what they did to Jesus. And there was a few black folk with me. And they're like, "We mean this is what happens to us all the time. That's why we yes. love Jesus. Knows all about our yes. trouble." <laughs> and we see Jesus in deep connection to us. But I was always raised. I didn't know that people thought Jesus was white, you know, because I was raised to see Jesus as being connected to the African Asiatic community. There's, there's no there's no possibility for him to be white. That's your depiction but in, in, the, in where I grew up, in the community that I grew up, and out of that freedom community, out of the civil rights, when you go through all of those people from Fred Shuttlesworth to Wyatt T. Walker to James Orange to Hosea Williams to, to my father to Dr. King, they all view Jesus as black. Let me give you an example. When Dr. King was small, he left his home. He would go to Ebenezer Baptist Church, obviously, and he walks down the the street of Auburn Avenue. Before he gets to his father's church, he passes by the Harborough Brooks funeral home that's owned by a black woman. Why is that important? Because in the 1930s, a black woman owned the only owner of a funeral home in the state of Georgia is a black woman. So patriarchy being destroyed as he's going to church. He walks by WERD, Word Radio, a black media company that is sharing black excellence and black empowerment economic empowerment on the radio every day, then stops by, he passes by the Atlanta Daily World, the only black daily newspaper in the United States that talks about what? Lynching and black excellence. Then he passes by and goes, sneaks into the balcony before he goes to his dad's church, Wheat Street Baptist Church, that is pastored by William Holmes Borders. Six, five, graduate of Morehouse, 350 pounds, 340 pounds. He's a big guy. looks like a, a fullback, you know, and, you know, he's, he's the Shaquille O'Neal of preaching, you know, <laughs> he's a big man. And he closes his sermons with the poetry that he has written, one that is in the Library of Congress entitled, I Am Somebody, that Jesse Jackson heard and used the refrain yeah. throughout his Operation Push days. And it goes like this. I am somebody. I'm a poet in Langston Hughes. I am somebody. I'm a scholar in W.E.B. Du Bois. I am somebody. I am a pilot in Bessie Strong. I am somebody. I'm a writer in Zora Neale Hurston. He heard that. 
But at the same time, William Holmes Borders played Jesus in the citywide passion play. Dr. King saw Jesus as a six, five black preacher from the days he was a child. That's who he saw Jesus as. And those people in Auburn Avenue saw that. And then he goes to Morehouse College and Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays uh, tells him that you are called to be a transformer in this community. That, that's mm. black spirituality. So mm. all of the, the, the evangelical framework uh, was not present on Auburn Avenue because it was connecting to West Africa and Eastern Africa. Because remember, when we arrived here, they are not, the scholars now say that many of us of the 20 odd Africans were already had been practicing the faith for over a hundred years. And when we arrived here, Muslim along with Christian, and there is now scholarship that is saying that from that, from the great trans Sahara movement of Mansa Musa, the ideas of the Ethiopian church show up in West Africa. So, so don't, no, 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 no. I, that, that, that idea never, never flowed uh, within, within the tradition that I was raised in. And white evangelicals would do well to lose their whiteness and listen to some black spirituality. Hey. My, my, my. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tyler, is that what we've been trying to tell them? Amen. Amen (laughs) again. And it it strikes me because so much of what you're talking about in terms of Black spiritual practice and, you know, Jamar and I often call the expansive Black Christian tradition connects to us doing something you talk about in the book, which is consecrating your chaos and Mm -hmm. taking the chaotic moments and seeing the rhythm and the order in them and pausing to see, which I, I love the, the illustrations you gave of in a, a fast break on, you know, at the, you know, when you're playing pickup basketball, that there's a, a chaotic movement, but it's beautiful if you pause to see the opportunity or an argument that could turn negative, but is de-escalated because you pause to breathe and um, insert a joke or, or lighten the mood. When you think about the chaos of this world, um, I, I don't. I don't know if there's a more important, more timely message than that, because we're actively in chaotic moments. It seems as though there's no respite from chaos. Mm. How are you teaching your congregation, and how are you personally, as a leader, practicing this idea of consecrating your chaos? Mm. Mm, that's a wonderful question. The chaos never leaves. It's always present, but it's always bound by particular spiritual laws and physical laws. And it requires us to learn how to pause and to be silent. And that's where I think Howard Thurman is so important. Uh, Thurman teaches us to learn how to pause because we find ourselves being drawn to the, how should I say it? Drawn to human-centric 
framings of how we are to engage the world. And so uh, Howard Thurman, my uh, professor Roswell Jackson used to joke and say, uh, in his gruff voice, he'd say, I would remember Howard Thurman walk across the campus and he would just be staring at a tree for 30 minutes. He'd get more out of that tree than a preacher would in a whole year of doing using a lectionary. You know, I mean, <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was fascinated. But he would say that if you look at nature, nature causes you, one, to pause, two, to wonder, and three, to see connection. Hmm. Pause, wonder, and connection. When you're in the city, you get caught up by the forest of stuff that humanity has made. But when you are by the river, when your tree is planted by the river, you get a chance to see the connection. And that's what every good activist, every good writer, every good artist, every um, person who seeks for transformation, they've learned how to pause. And in the chaos that is created by uh, the inebriation of white supremacy, we've got to pause and draw back into our tradition. Uh, we've got to pause and call on the brilliance of our ancestors. We have to pause and and allow the spirit to fill us uh, so that we can know what the next step is. Chaos will not stop, but human manufactured chaos can be mm. obliterated. That's mm. important. Chaos will not stop, but human manufactured chaos can be obliterated. So someone such as Bull Connor can be removed, who was the public safety director in Birmingham and caused the chaos. And Fred Shuttlesworth was the person who helped remove him by exposing him in a public trial. Uh, which is always fascinating if you read his, uh, his, his, his autobiography. It's absolutely fascinating how he literally embarrasses the man that everybody was terrified from by putting that man on trial and being ask, asking him questions. And they found out this dude can't talk and really can't read very well. <laughs> my, my, my. And all of a sudden he became the local joke of Black people mm -hmm. because he exposed, the, exposed him and was able to obliterate him with his brilliance. You know, when you think about um, this idea of chaos, and I love that these two chapters go together in the in the book. You know, chaos and then rage, mm -hmm. where we're approaching our own anger and frustration and violence. What you do with violence in this book um, was deeply challenging to me, and convicting, not because. I feel as though I'm prone to violence, but because the the specter of how we engage with people in violent ways mm. was really illuminated. Because you talked about it as whenever there's this response, there's this quick, satisfying moment where you can rest back control. But you said violence doesn't operate by simple mathematics. Mm -hmm. That violence by nature multiplies itself and multiplies its harm. In what ways is the church guilty of violence? Ooh, the church, oh, I like that. I really like that, Tyler. The church has been the corner man for violence. 
So when violence is doing its work in the ring, the church has been the corner man fixing the cuts and encouraging the violence. So, so many people have been wounded and in some cases even killed uh, by the violence that has come forth from the pulpit the vi- and the silence about violence that has come forth collectively from uh, church communities and the, the violence that continues to, uh, to move forth because there is, let me, let, me, let me say it this way. We celebrate and love violence, especially in the American context. I mean, think about it now. We, we've had so many mass shootings. We, there's no other industrialized country that has mass shootings the way that we do. And we actually have people who are elected officials to say, we think that teachers should be armed. A kindergarten teacher with a gun on their hip teaching kindergartners? And this rhetoric and this idea that bullets always go where they're supposed to go. My, my, my. Yeah. They, they don't. They, they don't. They, they, they go through walls and hit Breonna Taylor's. They, 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 they go through windows and take out three-year-olds. You know, they, they wound grandmothers. The bullet was intended for, I'm in Chicago. The bullet is intended for the logic that people who are colonized and feel that violence is a solution because violence is in itself a drug because it becomes the quick answer. Because when you don't have the spiritual practice to deal with your anger, it then becomes rage. Because rage and anger are two different things. They're not the same thing. You know, get angry, use your anger. God calls us to be angry. But when it becomes rage, it means you no longer have any control or sensibility and it then becomes something else that scratches at your spirit. That's why Muhammad Ali is one of the best examples of how to use rage to destroy your opponent. He he talks about all the time. He said he was in the ring with uh, was that the, the Foreman fight, and he's like Foreman can I mean can hurt a brother, you know? Yeah. It's like Foreman can really hurt a brother. And he said that one thing that I had to do is that said I had to get Foreman to lose his technique. He said Foreman was an, an amazing fighter. He said, but in terms of you know hitting, you know he was. He said if, if he gets too many the the right hits, you you in trouble. So he said I had to talk about him. In the ring, I had to say, you know, talk about his mom. He said he had talked about all kind of stuff. And he mom, said eventually mom. he fell into a rage and lost his form. He said, once the rage started, then I knew I could knock him out. And that's the spiritual lesson that we have to learn is that rage puts us in a position to be knocked out because we lose our form. Mm. Mm. I'm just marinating on it. Um, this is so profound. And 
Tyler, I almost attempted to just let you and Tyler talk because Tyler's a preacher, preacher. preacher. <laughs> oh, man. Y'all are poets. You, you, you're hitting another level. I'm just basking in the conversation. So uh, if anybody else out there is listening is like me, I'm just take it back to the basics. And uh, there's another uh, sentence that you wrote in the book toward the beginning. You said the Kingian tradition, meaning Martin Luther King, has been largely set aside, if not forgotten, in favor of a new narrative promising material gain, the so-called mm -hmm. prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, we can obviously talk about the prosperity gospel and its influence on uh, the black spiritual tradition, but, but that sentence reminded me of uh, your colleague and associate, Dr. Eddie S. Glaude, in his article from years back called The Black Church is Dead. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's a deliberately provocative you know, title and phrase, but I think what Dr. Glaude was getting at is that the Black church in its prophetic transformative tradition, he thought, um, or was arguing at this time, was, was a relic of the past. And it's been several years now. You and Dr. Glaude know each other. Um, you've written this book. I'm wondering if you can, in, within this context, speak to that statement, the, the mm -hmm. Black church is dead. Yeah, and I think that Dr. Glaude, he does such a beautiful job of raising this, this provocative question. And I remember when I was, I was on a panel with him and we were talking about it, and we're, and we're friends. Uh, and he was saying, because he has deep respect, deep, 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 deep love and respect for the Black church and Black spiritual tradition. He has a deep, uh, I mean, kind of, uh, I don't want to say anger. Um, he, he has issues with black churches. No, he, he, he loves the black church, but has issues with churches that have black, just black people that don't respect the black tradition. <laughs> and he's mm -hmm. saying that is a danger. Mm -hmm. He's saying that is a danger. And what has happened is Churches that are outside of the tradition but have black people have the mic. So they have been able to amplify, a minority has been able to amplify a message that is not directly out of black spirituality, but wear the clothes as if it is. And now a generation associates church black church with this Americanized prosperity framed theological counterfeit theological tradition. And, and that's really what happened. That's what, that's what Eddie was getting at. He, he is getting at that. The mic has been stolen. The, the voices have become so loud that it is marginalized the beauty and power of a tradition that is ancient, the tradition of Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells, the tradition of the Black social gospel, the tradition of Howard Thurman, and the tradition of Benjamin Elijah Mays. It has been marginalized. People don't know, know what it is, but they do. And I'm not going to mention the names on this, on this cast of they will know other names. And even confuse, for example, Father Divine um, and, and, and others, uh, who people try to frame as prosperity, but also they were also about empowerment. <laughs> so, so the ones from the forties, 
and and the 30s and the 50s were like, no, we're going to get a black bank. <laughs> we're going to get some. We're going to make sure that you build some houses. Um, you know, the the house of prayer was very clear about the only people who build our churches are they got to be black hands, and they got to be. I mean, they they had this idea of community empowerment, and and Eddie was really getting at the fact that there is a problem when this other tradition has taken taken the front seat because it has the mic. Doesn't mean these other traditions are gone. It just means that these these new traditions are obscuring our ability to see the the power of the prophetic lineage. And and I think that that's something that we really need to. And that's why I love what you all are doing on your podcast because you all are out of that powerful and beautiful beautiful tradition, and you're giving voice to the tradition. Uh, Dr. Tisby, the work that you're doing, you're giving voice to this tradition and you're giving a new generation the opportunity to know that, um, I almost said a name. Uh, (laughs) We we won't get you in trouble on this one. (laughs) I almost said a name, but I'm not going to say the name. Uh, Thinking that these individuals who talk about money coming and, you know, drop this money here, that that's black. That that's not it, you know. Harriet Tubman would have a heart attack <laughs> if she showed up, because she said the spirit inspired her. Mm. You know, she was re- it was very clear in her her tradition when she would fall into uh, these moments where the spirit would move into her. She said, "No, the spirit is calling me. That's why I go back. That's why I do the work that I do." Um, Vernon Johns would be would would have a heart attack, you know. Um, you know, Prathia Hall would snatch the mic and say, "Y'all need to stop this right now." <laughs> this, this, so the 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 pantheon from this tradition. I, I'm just a. All I want to do is be able to make sure that a new generation knows the pantheon of ancestors that are rooted in this deep embodiment. Black spirituality that is beyond 1619, that goes back to the beginning, that was sitting um, in Africa um, when Moses was drawn out the water. And know that uh, whenever, if you want a good Black book, it's called the Bible. Hey everybody, this is Tyler. This is Dr. Jamar Tisby. And we are excited that you're listening to this episode of Pastor Mike, but let me encourage you to support us. You can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Pastor Mike. And for just $1 an episode. Just a dollar? Now that's the bare minimum. That's four quarters. But if you want to go higher, okay, 5, go 10, higher. 15, right. 20, 25, whatever it is, that will keep this show going and keep the high quality that hopefully you enjoy. So thank you for listening, but you can take it to the next level. Patreon.com slash Pass the mic. We appreciate you. Wow. I, I have to ask this, Dr. Moss. It kind of dovetails in that we've been on this journey of helping people to process their complicated roots. Uh, one of the consequences of, as you mentioned, the inebriation of white supremacy is 
our roots are tied together with this land. And even one of the consequences of us trying to express ourselves in a fully black, uh, unapologetically black, unashamedly Christian way is we are tied together with, in some cases, slaveholder religion and uh, white evangelicalism and the colonized. And so some people, we've been trying to navigate, how do we help people, as we call it, leave loud? Um, how do we help people stir up good trouble? How do we help people step away from the spaces that they're in? And and some people feel a unique hold upon them because of whether it's uh, sustenance financially mm. or whether it's comfort or whether, and, and I don't say that dismissively because mm-hmm. I, I understand it. Um, I think it would be remiss of us not to ask you as a, a spiritual guide and sage to Speak to the people who are saying, I love this tradition that you're describing, but I'm I'm steeped in a, whether it's multi-ethnic church or white evangelical church tradition, that is creating a, a bit of turmoil for me because mm. it may not be exactly how I believe and what I want to see, but it pays my bills. And what about reconciliation? And what about, and, and so my spiritual expression feels as though, you know, some people may be saying their spiritual expression feels as though they almost feel this pressure to to integrate, not just physically, but spiritually and theologically. What would you say to the people who are wrestling with that after hearing you so beautifully describe the Black Christian tradition? Mm. There is a necessity for, because of the the deep diversity of, of who we are as human beings, for us to be in all places and living authentically in all places and not thinking that we have to imitate someone else, but we can draw and drink water uh, from a variety of wells. Uh, You know, I I would say that it is important that people are in, because I'm right now, I'm in the uh, Trinity United Church of Christ. We're in the United Church of Christ. We're in a white Mm -hmm. denomination. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But when we're living out authentically in this primarily uh, white uh, denomination, it's important that we have people in these spaces, uh, these allies, not only in spaces, uh, but people who are living authentically in those spaces. And I have to say that it becomes challenging because when you're in spaces that may not be shaped to affirm you, that means that you've got to even have a deeper spirituality to handle the microaggression and the undercutting of your your spirit and heart and and mind Mm -hmm. in, in, in those spaces. And you have to learn how to play some jazz. You know, I mean, you really do. You know, you have you have to learn not to just be in the symphony, but create your own band. That uh, creating spaces, you know, and that's why I think the jazz narrative teaches us how we create democracy in spaces that don't want democracy. Um, you know, taking instruments that aren't supposed to play together. Because this uniquely American, it's American, it's uniquely American music, but it's uniquely created. And the catalyst of that music is African, is African people who listen to the diversity of sounds 
in Louisiana, the Congo Square. So the sounds of indigenous people, the sounds of people who are Spanish, the sounds of German and French and Jewish immigrants meld together to create what we know as jazz that is framed and shaped by the polyrhythms of people of African descent, uh, better known as the pentatonic scale musically that is integrated into jazz music. And so jazz does what no other music in American history ever did. It took instruments that were never supposed to play together and brings them together to create a new sound. The saxophone was specifically for the marching band. And in Western music, you don't mix instruments. They're supposed to stay where they're supposed to stay, you know, because even in Western tradition believes in segregation. That's why the, uh, the musician and the mathematician don't have classes together. <laughs> so they, they believe in segregation. Uh, and so you have the wow. saxophone marching band, the piano, European classical then playing with a trap drum set, but it's supposed to do one, two time, but it uses polyrhythms. And then a bass that is supposed to be with a bow, but black folks say, use your fingers, baby. And every instrument is given the right to solo, meaning the saxophone doesn't have to sound like the piano and the piano doesn't have to sound like the drum, the drum doesn't have to sound like the bass. Everybody can bring their unique cultural narrative to the table. And in the process, something new is created in the process. That's democracy. That's democracy before democracy even knew what democracy was. And we were practicing it with our music and we practice it in our churches. And if you take that ethic in the white spaces that you're in, you will find that all communities want to be able to express their own particular cultural narrative. You just got to give them a framing that allows them to express it without oppressing someone else who wants to do a solo. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Listen, if we were in church, I would be standing up with my arms crossed. <laughs> You're nodding. You know how it is. You know how it is. Um, <laughs> so what I sense in your spiritual lineage and in the legacy that you are building as a pastor, as a theologian, as a sage, as Tyler's mentioned, is a Black prophetic transformative tradition that would remind many people of Martin Luther King and the other pantheon of Christian spiritual civil rights leaders who, who did not view Jesus and justice as mutually exclusive, but pursued justice because they followed Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm wondering is if in these turbulent times in your spirit, you sense a particular opportune moment for the black church to once again, not to imply that it was ever completely lost, but to be the lead, be the headlights in, in the justice movement mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. uh, does, does that make sense? It, it does. It does. Um, and I think that we have to begin to look at the you know acts of of justice and transformation, uh, compassion and liberation from a local perspective. Mm. Um, we have a Hollywood media centric framing of movements. My my my. 
where one person or one group or, mm. you know, and, and I think BLM helped us teach the decentralization. But in reality, when you really get down to it and having conversations, not only with my parents, but with others, is that you had a whole bunch of local people <laughs> yeah. who were doing amazing things. So I think that, for example, let's take uh, Reverend Heber Brown, uh, who is doing cooperative economics, but specifically in around farming in uh, and around the, the Baltimore, D.C. area, creating these co-ops of how do we, you know, wealthy folks say farm to table. I want to go to farm to table restaurant. He said, that's what it's supposed to be. You know, <laughs> right, right. Everybody's supposed to have. That's how Jesus ate, you know, <laughs> from the farm to table, you know, li- literally. That's what the whole feeding of the five loaves and fishes. That's farm. That's from, you know, seed to table. That's all that was. And so he's doing this local work of of, of amazing uh, organizing with this central spiritual black church rooting. Um, Reverend Stephen Green in in Harlem, uh, who is doing an, an incredible work of again organizing, bringing these young organizers in around Harlem and whatnot, uh, looking at how through the AME Church of how the AME church can be a prophetic voice around issues of incarceration uh, and dismantling uh, those, 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 those issues in and around um, uh, in, in incarceration. Uh, Dr. Valerie Bridgman Davis and women preach uh, and what she is doing is, yeah. is prophetic, powerful and national Um and what we have to do, I think that what we need more than anything else, is, um, and, and maybe y'all can help, maybe there's somebody who's listening who can help. We need a PR firm, <laughs> essentially, that can help weave the multiple local narratives together so that we can see a tapestry of black spirit, the black spiritual quilt working across the nation. Mm. We, we need to see the 136 freedom schools in Mississippi that are run by black churches, essentially, that come from the Children's Defense Fund. People need to know their names and what they're doing. Yeah, We, we need to know those organizers and those organizations. We, we need to know the work that, you know, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference is doing. Yes. Um, and Jude 3 are doing yes. in the same breath. We, we we need we need to weave this, and there needs to be a group. And there's I'm just I'm just maybe, maybe this is prophetic here. There's like that. There's somebody nice. on this podcast. <laughs> we want to be that PR group to weave a narrative. So when people speak, they're not speaking from ignorance. They can say, "Let me tell you what's happening in New York and Baltimore. Let me share with you what's going on in Atlanta. Let me tell you about the Dream Defenders in in Florida. Let me take you over to Texas and to uh, Mississippi. Let me share with you what's going on out in Oakland. Here are people doing the work, weaving that together collectively, so that we get a sensibility not of uh, the homogeneous nature of of the Black Church, but this tapestry." That it's a quilt. And if we weave this thing together, we can wrap this thing around people who are vulnerable, uh, who are hungry, who are naked and need uh, to feel and experience the power and love of God in their lives. Hmm. Say <laughs> that's a 
that's I feel like that was a prophetic uh, charge to the witness. You know, <laughs> I feel like that was a prophetic charge to us. Yeah, Doctor Moss, I, I can't. <clears throat> we can't have this conversation without talking about your predecessor, Doctor Wright, um, the Reverend Doctor Jeremiah Wright, who was, you know, seen by many people as the lightning rod and the 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 boogeyman, and became one of the most hated men in America almost overnight. It seemed. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that instance and that incident looks now, years later, post George Floyd, Mike Brown, post Breonna Taylor, uh, Sandra Bland? It looks so much different now and almost feels as though he was ahead of his time, but really and truly, it's where much of the Black Christian tradition had been. When you look back at that now, is there almost this surreal idea of this really happened? Like, this, this really happened. We really received death threats. This is really, a, we yeah. had to change everything. This really happened. Um, how do we view, how do you view it now, uh, the, the witness and the work of Dr. Wright, which you have taken on the mantle of? And then also, what, what does that particular instance with a voice speaking out for truth and justice and love, what might that instruct us in today? Mm, mm. Jamal Bryant preached a sermon years ago. Well, it was probably, yeah, it was years ago now. It seems so far away, but it was in 2008. I remember turning on, I think on YouTube, and uh, he he had a sermon entitled, Right Was Not Wrong. (laughs) <laughs> and mm, my, my. that embodies it it's just so so jamal because it is he, it is frame things so culturally and so in such a it, 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 a quick and powerful way and that quote is i think embodies everything dr jeremiah wright uh one of the preeminent most powerful prophetic and scholarly voices, not just in the black church, but period, <laughs> just, I'm just as a period, um, yes. was preaching out of a tradition, not an anomaly, not, uh, something that is, you know, far out to the margins. He was preaching out of the tradition of Samuel DeWitt Proctor. He was preaching out of the tradition of Vernon Johns. He was preaching out of the tradition of Prathia Hall. He was doing what was normal. He was preaching what his father had taught him in his in the pulpit he grew up in, in the church he grew up in, in Philadelphia. This was so normative. And he was lifting up not only the rhetorical tradition. But he was a scholarly tradition of yeah. James Cone and Dwight Hopkins and Linda Thomas and uh, Renita Weems. I mean, th- this is what this th- the man is talking about on on Sunday and peppering his messages with with the the scholarship of Aubrey Hendricks and other people. That's what he's doing. It was normal. It wasn't anything um, uh, abnormal. But what was fascinating and was dangerous and political 
operatives understood and understand that black people are seen, are immediately weaponized in the white imagination as mm. problematic. Yes. So if you have a black voice speaking prophetically, the sermon was about God or government. I mean, that's a, it was a great sermon, you know, it said that, you know, governments do this, you know, governments bomb people and governments uh, do what's um, for the wealthy, but God is for, you know, those who are marginalized. God is for, I mean, it was, it was, it was really just really powerful. It's what, you know, wonderful piece. And it's something that he, you know, always did, but it, it was a very surreal uh, moment. When we think about it, it seems so far away today that you have millions of dollars of oppo research and the only thing you could find to attack a black man and his family sir was to say that he he's a muslim oh and his pastor that would think about the contradiction there <laughs> it's like he, he's a muslim wow. but his pastor said that Wait, wait, well, hold away. Now, is he a Muslim or is he is he, is he a great is he? <laughs> But but you know that white supremacy doesn't have uh you know it's it it, it logic, you know. Um and and so they had to find a black man giving a speech, a sermon, a snippet of in this the the tradition of, of black preaching which is not normative in other communities. It's one that is, is loved. And I think the finest tradition in, in American homiletics comes out of the black church. I will, I will live and die on that hill, uh, no matter what, that I think that, you know, people completely should agree. Completely yeah, agree. I, I think that there's, there's no, there's no argument. It's just like, you know, the, the basis of the greatest creativity that comes in that uh, aspect that we call basketball, you know, it ain't gonna be found in Europe. You got to find some black folk. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, whether it's WNBA or NBA. Amen. 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 Everybody's got to emulate us. If you want to, if you want to be a goat, you're going to have to emulate <laughs> yes. <a> black goat. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, and, and so many people had not heard that, heard this, this, this kind of tradition and this preaching. And then they used the, the racialized imagination to stir up uh, what had already, you know, stir up the poison that was already latent and within the American body politic politic. I mean, it just is, is it is case in point and, and, and probably a case study in the Southern strategy in the 21st century. Hmm. Southern strategy is create fear among white electorate and use that. And the way you create fear is you must have a black face uh, or words that are dog whistles that cause fear. Yes. And so they used Dr. Wright, but he has been vindicated. Yes. Because what's fascinating is so many young people who were disengaged did not believe that the black church had anything to offer. He then becomes an icon for the BLM movement. Right. He becomes like, they said, well, what about Dr. Wright? You know, Dr. Wright told us, you know, I was like, wait, you, you said, you know, you said you hate the church. Well, I'm with Dr. Wright. I was like, that's, that's, that's that's powerful. Wow. Using someone 
he, he, he didn't even know it, that he was going to become an icon to help people reconcile their trauma with the church. Wow. Wow. Dr. Moss, before I let you go, can you speak over, can you speak to our souls? You, You already have, but can you speak directly to the Black Christians who are tired, who are frustrated, who are overwhelmed, who are at their point of I don't want to say exhaustion as if it's just fatigue, but there's a soul weariness that takes place. Mm -hmm. And as we get ready to approach this new election cycle and I'm in Florida, so, you know, I'm, I'm under siege all the time. But as we, as we get ready to approach this new election cycle, can you give us a word of encouragement as we're, recovering from mass shootings and we see our siblings in the street um, and we're trying to protest and stand for what is right. Can you encourage us Mm. in this moment? My father spoke at the Children's Defense Fund um, this past summer. And it was, my my father's now 88 and uh, he just has birthday in February. And it was via video. He wasn't there uh, um, in person. He was there on video. And he said to everyone, all of the organizers and activists who were present at the, the conference on child advocacy, he said, in your time, you can make a difference. In your time is all you can do. It is your responsibility in your time and pass it on. You don't have to make the entire world different. All you have to do is put a brick on the foundation of a new world. That's it. And no, have enough sense to know that your soul needs to be nurtured. Understand the power of holy rest and holy play and laughter and joy and incite that joy. There is a tendency with the algorithms of our current culture for us to hold on to so much negativity and not pause enough to see the wonder and beauty. God doesn't shout. God whispers and says, do you see me working? Do what you can in the time that you have and pass it on. Because we all will be an ancestor and all you can do is pass the baton. See, I used to run track and I ran the four by one. Uh, I might add all American, by the way, division two. Um, and all we could do, it would, I ran the four by one in the nationals. Coach is like, you just run your leg. You can't run the whole 400 meters. You run the leg that you have been given. 
and your job is to pass the baton. We get weary when we try to run past the leg that we have been given or run into someone else's lane where we have not been assigned. Wow. Whew. Doctor, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, that is a word we needed to hear. That's a word I needed to hear. Thank you for your work, your ministry, your scholarship, your voice, your preaching. Thank you for being you in this time. We appreciate you, and we appreciate you being here. And it's my, it's my pleasure to be with you. I have been looking forward to this. You, you don't know. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, I, I'm serious. I'm not joking. I was like, man, I get to be on past the mic? Oh, my goodness. This is an honor. I've been wanting to pass the mic, you know, for, for years. I have loved the work that you all have been doing. Wow. And you are doing transformative, let me say it again, transformative work of placing seeds that are going to blossom into a forest in the future. Wow. In people's hearts. So thank you for the work that you are doing. Uh, doctor, it's so funny. Um, before we close, I we just recently had this episode where we talked about who are some of our influences and who are some of the people that... Uh, have shaped us from afar or from near. And I'd like to systematize my list. So I broke it down and, you know, whose relational family dynamics have shaped me, whose, you know, voice scholarship has shaped me, ministry, and then preaching um, as a young preacher. And um, in the preaching section, um, I talked about your work and I mentioned your name um, as that shaping voice because in so many, if I look back and think through the moments in which there have been inflection points of hope and kind of someone sparking a match, like just, you know, throwing it into maybe uh, dry kindling or wet kindling um, in my heart and my soul, I think about those moments. I think about the Lyman Beecher lectures that you gave. Um, I think about your speech at CCDA. Um, I think about strategic moments where I engage with your work. And so when I think about when I think about those ripple effects and those moments of excitement and hope that I've received, your work has just been so crucial mm. for that. And I just I don't mean to do the black man throw it back to you. I'm trying to get like you think, but I just want to say thank you for keeping us going and be so being so foundational in our hope and in our encouragement as we do this work. And if not for people like you who are holding up the possibility and the hope that the black church can still be relevant, that the black spiritual Christian voice um, can still speak to these times. I don't know where we would be at Pass the Mic to Witness. I don't know where we would be. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It is just a real privilege, as I said, to, to be on here and, and please continue on the, the amazing work uh, that you are doing, we are we are better for it.